must keep me near the cross. There's a precious fountain free to Good morning. It is a good morning. It's a good time to be just in church, surrounded with brothers and sisters who are clinging on to Christ, just like all of us should be. Thank you so much, Cherie, for reading the text. As we dive and continue into our series in Romans, 
We're in uh, Romans chapter 7, uh, the second half, the latter half, a very important portion of the epistle. I um, just want to give a couple of preliminary announcements. Uh, just be on the lookout for Families Count. That is coming up uh, here in the early month of November. Uh, Family Fun Night is actually next week, starting from 5 to 7. Um, we're going to be looking for everybody to participate in that. It's going to be a really good time, food and fun and family. Just cut, getting together, having a little bit of a kickback. We'll need guys with, uh, and gals, uh, a couple people with trucks to come and help us set that up. That's on Thursday between 5 and 7. Uh, first Thursday is next month in September. If you want to participate in what we're doing in Southtown, you can just reach out to Joy Fuqua, um, and she can direct you further. Second Sunday is tonight. If you have questions on, um, you know, what's going on with that and the age demographic, we want to do something for our kids who are a little bit older. That'll be tonight at 6 p.m. You can reach out to Joe and Lindsay Tillman. Uh, I just want to encourage my church family. Uh, if you're a member here and not particularly involved in anything yet. Uh, we need more volunteers in every aspect, but, but particularly back there with the kids. Um, Heather is looking for more volunteers to make themselves available. Uh, as Bilbo says, as he holds on to the ring for a little too long, he says, I feel like I'm just butter scraped over too much bread. And some of our volunteers are feeling like that with rambunctious children, my daughter Hadassah being the chief. And so um, we just asked if you have the availability, you know, once every two or three Sundays, just uh, make yourself available. You can reach out to Heather um, if you want to do that. Uh, and so as we dive into the text, uh, I want to pick up where I left off last week, speaking of that book that Robert Louis Stevenson wrote. Robert Louis Stevenson told a story that uh, I think people see as an adventure. Many of us perhaps probe it beyond the superficiality of its uh, storyline. The main character is a picture of many of us, um, a Victorian Englishman who always to, desires to do what is good and proper and what is right, like all of us. But he was haunted by some dark shadow that lurked in the distance and then would catch up with him and he'd find himself acting out that which was not very Victorian. In fact, West, a string of murders lined the streets of the city, uh, traced back to some malevolent figure in the night, only to discover that it is the equal opposite shadow of none other than Dr. Jekyll. Jekyll needs to resolve this issue, and he comes up with a solution. He creates a concoction, a potion, Hunter, that he can take, and this would balance things out, balance out darkness and light good and bad. And he does it, and thus becomes the storyline of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Now, psychologists would take this as an archetype and see it not just as dual personality, but they would see it as what is lurking inside of all of us, maybe mentally, Rick, good and bad. In the same sense where people would look at it and see perhaps an addiction they see a person that's struggling with an addiction, a person who battles that addiction. They, can, they would conclude that it must be overcome with something more than just physical adjustment or behavior modification, but possibly something mental. Buster, psychologists would conclude by saying this. Wouldn't it be nice if all we had to do was drink a potion to put our hide in the closet? What Sharia has read to us this morning 
is the conflict that Paul speaks of autobiographically. In fact, Jessica, he's pulling out his heart, laying it on the table, and saying, look at me. It's giving us an image of who he really is on the inside. He gives us a picture autobiographically, really, to help John Tavius Knight. I can speak for myself to say that there is a war within and a battle without that continues all the way to the grave until you become like a glorified body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you identify with anything that I've said so far, then you too, like me, are right here in the text. When some read this, they say, oh, this is Paul before he comes to know Christ. No, this is post-Paul. Some people say, well, this is Paul trying to live up to the morality of the law. No, no, sir, no, ma'am. This is Christian Paul converted on the Damascus Road, understanding that he cannot live up to the morality of the law. And some even say, Christian, that this is Paul giving us a picture of the ineptitude of the religions of the world and how they fall short of completely satisfying us. No, incorrect again. This is Paul saying, my Lord and my God. This is Paul speaking to us, even if we didn't have Romans 7, we could look at Galatians 5:17 when you read these words, "For the sinful nature desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh or the sinful nature. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. It's a picture of a battle within, a battle without and a war within. And I know there are some people in this room will probably laugh and say, you can preach that to those flunkies across town. You preach that to those other folks. I don't have that battle. And I would say congratulations, but if the battle without and the war within between the flesh and the spirit don't apply to you, it only means that you aren't a Christian. Anyone who has committed themselves to following the Lord Jesus Christ knows what it means to have to do war within and battle without. It is, and I say this with all seriousness, it's a clutch situation. It's a clutch circumstance. I know my fellow New York Knicks fan, Mark Bryson, understands that although we don't see it oftentimes, what a clutch situation is. It's a situation in which uh, there's critical uh, time frame in which the outcome of a competition is at stake. Um, brothers and sisters, there are a number of appropriate and accurate words that we can use to describe the nature and character of our God. One of those words is clutch. Let the church say clutch. clutch. Now, you know, it's widely accepted that one must demonstrate an ability to deliver in the most desperate, despondent, and dire of situations to be labeled as clutch. One must deliver with an ice-cold disposition when the molten infernos of life's vicissitudes, life's ups and downs, life's rhythms begin to fire up. And if you're maybe somehow in this room and you just haven't had life's throw life throw problems at you, let me just give you some advice that the old church mother would say I was, as I was growing up. She would just say, if you haven't had struggles in life, just keep on living. They will end up coming to you. And perhaps somebody doesn't understand the true nature of what it means to be clutch. So, Hunter, uh, Matt... Let me just throw out a list of names. Uh, Michael Jeffrey Jordan. We would say that he was clutch. He knew how to deliver in the most dire and despondent situations. Or Reggie Jackson, who could call his shot 
in the most uh, pressurized situations on the diamond, or you got big shot Robert Horry who would uh, sink something from three no matter what the situation might be. And then you've got my personal favorite, uh, John Elway, uh, the pretty boy, the one with the great smile, who no matter what the down and the distance, no matter what time it was in the fourth quarter, you knew that even from 99 yards away, he was going to find a way to put points on the board. Or you even got Larry Bird and his mustache, a guy who would tell people in those critical situations, he'd say, don't even worry about it. I'm going to catch the ball right here. I'm going to shoot it. And you even got to worry about it. Then would proceed to uh, follow the exact same play, sink the ball in the hoop, and before the ball could touch the bottom of the basket, he's already in the locker room, cracking open a Coors Light, waiting on the reporters to come and interview him. Larry Bird was clutch. But I've got one more name I want to throw out. Eli Manning. Let me be clear to say, Eli Manning is not a first ballot Hall of Famer. But people would suggest that Eli Manning is clutch. I don't have anything to say about Drew Brees. I'm sorry, Zach. But Eli Manning is a special case because everybody I named before him had the strut, the height, the swagger, you know, the intangibles, the good looks, the technique, and the appeal to the masses. But not Eli. He wasn't like his brother Peyton Manning. See, Eli comes in with this dopey, all shucks appeal. Eli will throw interceptions all regular season long. He'll fumble the football. No one even has to tackle him. He will fumble the football all throughout the regular season. Eli will take sacks after sacks after sacks all regular season long, but mess around, John, and let Eli Manning get in the playoff hunt. Doesn't matter how dreadful and intimidating the opposition might be. Doesn't matter how discouraging the situation might be. Doesn't matter if it's Tom Brady. Doesn't matter who it is, Eli Manning has had two instances where he showed up and showed out in the most dire and desperate uh, of situations. And I must reiterate the fact that Eli doesn't look the part. Church, pay attention here because there's an immediate and obvious conflict when you mention Eli and the word clutch in the same sentence. Because he doesn't carry those external measurements of what the shallow might suggest are the qualities of a prototypical leader and quarterback. But how many of you know that the God that we serve specializes in turning conflicts into crowns? Eli defies the norm. He contradicts stereotypical categories. He's not like the many biblical characters that we often run to to uplift and celebrate. You know, you got Saul, who the Bible says stood head and shoulders above everyone else. Man, I wish I could be tall like Saul. You've also got David with his athleticism and dexterity. Uh, who defeated the giant Goliath, but also with such a soft heart that he could write these beautiful sonnets before God presenting himself in his heart afresh. And then you've got David's son, Solomon, who was given wisdom, as the word of God says, that came from God above. And yet, all these men who the masses reverenced and revered, you know, Saul is slayed his thousands, but David is slayed his tens of thousands. The crowd is going wild, and yet all of them fell short. Their descendants not only split the kingdom in two, but led the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, into exile and captivity. Uh, exclusion eventually became the expectation and language of the day. The situation was abysmal from the rise of a kingdom beginning in the book of Joshua 
to those destitute dynamics we see in Nehemiah all the way to Malachi, the state of the affairs in the nation of Israel, and for the whole world for that matter, was dark, it was dreadful, and it was discouraging. It seems at this time as if there is no hope for anyone, no deliverer for God's people. It's fourth quarter and mankind is down with under a minute left, but on one blessed night in Bethlehem, the clutch God stepped into time just in time. Uh, the power of all creation stooped low enough to become one of us, and the Son of God became a man so that men could become sons of God. Augustine would say it this way, man's maker was made a man that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, that the fountain might thirst, that the light might sleep, that the way might be made tired on his journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, that the foundation might be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, and that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. He is clutch. I said, let the church say clutch. Uh -huh. the, the tradition I come from, we talk about God's clutchness in this way. We'll say he's a rock in a weary land. We'll say he'll make a way out of no way. He's a healer in the sick room. See, I know the God that I know turns conflicts and controversy into crowning accomplishments. He is a, as we say, a mind regulator. See, there's conflict there, especially if you have kids. You know that rarely is your mind being regulated. He's a father to the fatherless because God reigns and exists in clutch conflicts. I said he is clutch, church. Let the church say clutch and in this portion of the New Testament epistle it seems to paint this vivid image of humanity's consistent failure and maybe I need to just call St. Jude to the witness stand and hear him say now unto him who was able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy he's clutch I said he is clutch now he may not come when you want him to but as I've grown up to know, he always shows up in the clutch. God exists and reigns in the midst of our conflicts. And that's what Paul is elevating here in this particular portion of the text. He's elevating God, but he's doing it with three things that I see. I'm going to call Mr. John Stott to help me sort of preach this particular sermon. Yeah, there's two things on each way God is elevating conflict. There's a conflict between two egos. There's a conflict between two laws and a conflict again between two cries from the heart. You see it right there in Romans chapter 7, verse 21. Paul says, so I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. When I want to do what's right, evil is present with me. Now, one might paraphrase it this way. When in me there's a desire to do good, by me evil is close at hand. This may remind you of what you see in the early book of Genesis, where God speaks directly to Cain and says, do right. If you fail to do right, sin lies crouching at, near you at your door. Evil and the good are both present simultaneously for they are part of a fallen yet regenerate personality. Now, I know Reverend Popular wants to make it seem like when you begin to trust God, all your problems disappear. You never have any outward or inner conflict, but 
y'all know that just ain't true. Uh, if you've uh, been on the battlefield fighting for the Lord, you're not just fighting externally. You're not waving a sword or a wand like Gandalf. No, you are fighting on the inside between what is good and what is evil right beside you. These are two egos that exist between everybody. How many of you know that that's true? Yeah, yeah. And you know what's sad? In our particularly uh, anemic expression of Christianity in the Western part of the world, we make following Jesus all about a life of ease and comfort. And thus we produce Christians who cannot suffer. But Paul says it this way, I want to know Christ in the fellowship of his suffering. Your, your best display of Christian witness is your ability and your willingness to suffer well. There's not just two egos working at play. There's not just this, I want to do good, but evil is still there. But there's also two laws at play. Paul says it this way in verse 22 and 23. He says, for in my inner self, I delight in God's law. But I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind, taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. The characteristic of this law of my mind is that it operates in my inner being and delights in God's law. That is what we call the Christian renewing of the mind. And yet the characteristic of this law of sin that operates in me, it operates in the members of my body and it fights against the law of my mind and takes me captive. We can agree, as Paul says right here, that the law is good. He says, I delight in God's law. Psalms 119, verse 65, somewhere in there. Lord, you are good, and what you do is good. Well, your word is more precious to me than thousands of people, thousands of pieces of silver and gold. The word of God says, before I, went af before I was afflicted, before I suffered, I went astray. But now I obey your word. There has to be an elevating and a delighting in God's law because God's law is good. When you hear the oracles of God proclaimed, even though it might be hard to your flesh, if you don't delight in it, it just simply means you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean you have to meet the levels and expectations of the law perfectly. No one can do that. But when I hear the oracles of God portrayed, uh, we delight in God's law because the law is good. Now, sometimes it doesn't feel like it's good to us, right? But we know that it's always good for us. This reminds me of my dog I used to have. His name was Gizmo. That was his name, Gizmo. He was a rescue. You know, we found him, and, you know, we were good to Gizmo, boy. I mean, we uh, bought him everything that he wanted and needed, uh, got him a nice play pen, had a huge backyard to run around in, uh, kibbles and bits, only the best for Gizmo. Bacon strips, y'all remember those? Only the best for Gizmo. We take him for walks. We give him baths on a regular basis. I mean, we just treated Gizmo like he was just a part of our family. And man, one day Gizmo got off the leash and was gone. But we were good to Gizmo. And me and my little brother, man, we running around all through the community, posting up signs. If you see this dog, call this number. We crying, Gizmo, where are you? Come back. And one day I walked down to the park and I saw Gizmo. And we had a moment of intimacy. Gizmo looked me right in my eyes, remembering how good I was to him. Gizmo looked me dead in the face. And you know what Gizmo did? He took off running the other way. But I was good to Gizmo. I was good to him. How many of you know that the word of God tells the truth when it says we are all prone to wander? Knowing well that God is good to us. 
just as the prodigal son left a, a perfect situation, comes to his senses and says, what am I doing in this place? That's us. Because why? There are two laws at work. There's two egos at work. You, you, you know what is good and you want to do what is right. You want to please God. But there's this other ego, this other law that sits right here. And see, this is the condition of a person who is still under the law. And what I mean by that is this is the condition of a person who refuses to submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is Jesus' way of presiding over our conflicts and controversies, being saved but still being in the flesh, being called out on our way to heaven, on our way home, and yet still being a part of the brokenness of this world. The Holy Spirit is, is what helps lead and guide us through those things. And so I encourage you on this morning, ask yourself, am I submitted to the Holy Spirit? Or am I only living on tertiary expressions of Christianity? They're only asking me to do a couple things like show up on a Sunday morning, you know, maybe clap my hands and, you know, maybe give a little offering. But am I really listening to the Holy Spirit in the everyday rhythms of life as I deal with my spouse and my children, as I'm on the job? Am I listening to the Holy Spirit as he urges me to suffer well? Again, Reverend Popular down the street is going to tell you, well, you know, uh, the Holy Spirit is there to empower you to, to float and to, and to work miracles. But no, no, no. I, the Holy Spirit is there to help us walk in fellowship with Christ. Paul says, I want to know Christ in the fellowship of his suffering. There are two egos here. There are two laws at work, but there's also two cries from the heart. Paul says it this way in verse 24. Oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? That's one cry. Oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Now, I don't think Paul is languishing uh, over his own brokenness. This isn't just uh, some type of uh, pity party that Paul is throwing. No, Paul is laying out for us the posture that each Christian ought to carry. You ought to lament over your, over your sin. You ought to carry a godly sorrow. But Paul asked a question, but it's rhetorical. He already knows the answer because the first cry is, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And the second uh, cry from the heart is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's the posture. That's the rhythm. That's the dual uh, reality we ought to walk in each and every day. We wake up in the morning saying, thanks be unto God. I see the brokenness in this world. I see the heartache and the, and the death and the sickness. I see the racism and the prejudice. I see the oppression. But thanks be unto God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We exist in the brokenness of this world as witnesses unto God who exist in the brokenness of our inner conflict. It's a reference. It's a witness. That's what Christ is calling, to, calling us to. And see, that's the, uh, going back to football references, that's the victory formation of the Christian walk. I know it's popular to suggest that victory is all about uh, looking good and uh, successful and being popular and pristine, but real victory in Christ is clinging to Christ as your only hope, whether in good times or bad times. My hope is built on nothing less. It's not built in my paycheck or what side of town I live on or the kind of car that I drive. My hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I want to be clear here. 
your hope is not built in whether or not your college football team wins on a Saturday or how many members you see sitting beside you on a Sunday morning. It's built in Christ. But that's not, that isn't something that just happens by osmosis. This is something Paul is displaying for us that he's dedicating his mind towards. This is something that he's constantly reminding himself of. And that's why we gather on a Sunday morning. We don't come here just to go through formalities. No, this liturgy is to remind us of what we're a part of. It's why we partake in proclaiming the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. As a symbol to being dead to the old man, we're reminding ourselves of the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to be clear here as I get ready to wrap up. In our walk with Christ, temptation to sin often follows shortly after a spiritual triumph. The temptation to sin often follows quickly after we get ready to leave here. You're feeling good. You're feeling great. Defenses are down. But it's in those moments that we are most susceptible to pride. And the sin of pride is the gateway to all other sins. That's what Genesis tells us from the very beginning. The key thing you want to take away from this particular epistle is that None of us are too spiritual or too lofty to fall. But thanks be unto God that he holds us in his hand. He holds us together through the tensions that life throws our way, the conflicts, the inner conflict. Because, you know, when you start, when you recognize sin in your heart, the immediate thing you want to do is what? Condemn yourself. But thanks be unto God that Jesus has already paid the price. We ought to live in that reality. And that's hard when you've got messages coming to you uh, from the television and magazines and newspapers. Oh, don't even get me started on that timeline and social media, huh? Don't put your value in those things. Find your value and your identity in Jesus Christ, not in who you think is living on a higher, holier level. No, no, no. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Let's pray together. God, we look in and we, we see the brokenness, God. We look outward, we see the brokenness, God. There's too many things to name, God. The brokenness of this world, it touches me, God, in a profound way, God. I look at my own sin, God, and I'm, I'm, I lament and I'm broken in a profound way, Father God. But I thank you, Lord, that you've given me a, a pivot move to always turn to, Father God, to look towards Christ. Not into my ability to work or to earn, Father God. Thank you for giving all of us a pivot move, Father God. Help us to make the cry of our heart, thanks be unto God. Help us to look at life with sober reality. Help us not to think of anyone as less than us. Help us to look at ourselves and say, oh, what a wretched man, what a wretched woman I am. And then ask, who can save me? And help us to pivot and say, thanks be unto God. Help us to walk in humility, God, and help us to connect our humility with the way we connect and treat one another. Help us to say thanks be unto God with our actions. Help us to say thanks be unto God with our words. Help us to say thanks be unto God with our commitment to Christian community and fellowship. God, we see the brokenness, God. We don't ignore it. We don't act like it's not there, God. We see the racism, God. We see the death, Father God. We see the hunger, Father God, and the hate. 
Oh, what a wretched people we are, Father God. But thanks be unto God. Help us to always pivot in humility towards you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen.